Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gabriel of Saul, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons, Samuel said. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? He said peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Elab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called, you know, whatever it says up there, and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse um, made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for he will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. So looks aren't everything, right? Men and women look at the face. God looks into the heart. But then the very picture of health, bright-eyed and good-looking. Yeah? So God looks at the heart, but by the way, he was pretty dapper, right? And such is the introduction of one of the most well-known people in the entire biblical narrative, King David. Yeah? King David. So last week we saw Israel demanding a king, right? To be like all the other nations, like everyone else. And how maybe that desire was not such a good thing for them way back then. And how maybe that's not such a good thing for us here today either, right? Even so, God sets out to make something beautiful 
from this. And between that moment and this one with young David, by the way, tradition says that David was probably about eight years old at this time. Just a little boy. Between that moment and this one, 1 Samuel 9, we left off in 1 Samuel 8 last week. 1 Samuel 9, there was a man from the tribe of Benjamin named Kish. He had a son, Saul, a most handsome young man. We can't get away from these guys. There was none finer. None finer. He literally stood a head and shoulders above the crowd. It's hard to miss Saul. So some of daddy's donkeys, daddy Kish's donkeys, some of daddy's donkeys had gotten lost and Saul went out to find them to no avail. A donkey, that's an important point there. Saul's servant mentioned a holy man. This holy man happened to be Samuel, by the way, uh, in a nearby town. And they set out to go meet this holy man and ask him for guidance, right? Maybe this holy man, if we give him a silver coin, he'll tell us where to find our donkeys. Yeah. <laughs> and the day before, God had told Samuel that the person that he should anoint as prince and future king of Israel, uh, that he would be by the next day. And as Saul approached Samuel, God says to Samuel, he's the one, the man I told you about. This is the one who will keep my people in check. Important selection of words there. So God had high hopes for this Saul fellow. You agree? Saul and Samuel ate and drank and Samuel anointed him before sending him on his way and telling him, God is with you. Whatever you set your, your hands to, whatever work you're given, do it. God is with you. Yeah? Samuel himself, of course, is passed over for this role. Maybe he's too old, but I mean, why shouldn't Samuel be anointed king, right? He's respected, he's tested, he's faithful, right? But instead, it goes to the good-looking young man who stands head above everyone else. I wonder sometimes if Samuel felt a little twinge at that reality. You ever think about that? If Samuel felt kind of burned? But instead, Samuel is effectively Saul's right hand. But along the way between chapters 9 and 15, our anointed king of Israel, Saul, made some poor decisions, right? If you're at all familiar with the story, you know Saul, he just couldn't. At one point, Samuel says to him in chapter 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I mean, we're four chapters into Saul, and it's over, basically. Ouch. So Saul, he had begun to strike fear into the people of Israel, into their hearts and minds. And this fear even extended to the experience of his right hand, Samuel. So even to the point that when Samuel approached the, the, the town fathers in Bethlehem in our passage in, in 1516, uh, how, how did they respond? Is there something wrong? 
They were afraid, right? They were afraid. He has to say, no, nothing's wrong. I'm just here to sacrifice. Yeah. This clearly, though, it's not going well, right? And so we come to this story introducing David. David, the young shepherd, the sheep herder, shepherd, right? Sheep herd, who stands in contrast to Saul, the what? The donkey herder, right? This is easy to miss, but the original audience would have picked up on this little tidbit and probably had a good chuckle. Shepherds in this time were symbolic. They were stand-ins for kings. This, this role of shepherd. The kings were supposed to be shepherds. They were supposed to tend the flock, the people, right? To shepherd them. To, in our language, pastor them. Yeah? But Saul, Saul was not a herder of sheep. Saul was found searching for some lost donkeys. Some jackasses. Right? Almost like this was an ironic indictment on the people he would eventually lead. Saul was there keeping the stiff-necked donkeys, what, in check. Yeah? Not shepherding. And perhaps this even is a twist on the good shepherd who would eventually come searching for a lost sheep. Right? I'm talking about Jesus. Anyway, as mentioned, this project was clearly not going according to plan. It was not going well at all. A couple of summers ago, uh, Kristen and I, I think it was two years ago, we, uh, we went on a kayaking trip to the Buffalo River. We thoroughly enjoyed ourselves, and we said, we have to do this more often. You know, we have to do this more. It was so much fun. Uh, and so last year we intended to do it some more, but, you know, uh, 2020 was weird. And so this year we, we, we bought a pair of tandem kayaks. And, man, we're, we're looking forward to it. We got a rack on the Jeep, and we got the holders, and we're loaded up. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, there's so much anticipation and building up. I think I slept. We went yesterday. Up to near, uh, is it Siloam Springs? I always get that mixed up. Siloam Springs, Hot Springs. So Siloam Springs up on the Illinois River. And I'm a little colored today, if you can see. You should see my legs beneath my knees. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty rough. Uh, but anyway, even with 100 SPF sunscreen on. Uh, but we... There was so much anticipation. The night before, this is Friday night... I, I think I slept four hours. I couldn't fall asleep. <laughs> uh, so there's all this anticipation, all this buildup, and we, we go up to this, uh, there's a kayak park in Siloam Springs, uh, and it's super neat. It's all like engineered where the river just flows through, and there's kind of like man-made rapids, and they're not real harmful or anything. They're easy to flow through. Uh, there's kind of a swimming area and stuff like that. It's all built into the river. We get there, and there's like four or five cars out there. You know, it's no big deal. We leave her car, and we head to another public access point uh, back to the uh, east a bit. And that's where I park my Jeep. We unload. We get in the water. And uh, we get everything loaded up. And I send Kristen and Olivia on their tandem kayak, push them out. 
then I hop on with Abram, and we we make our way out. And I'm telling you what, not 60 seconds into this thing, we run into a tree and flip over. Abe and I. And uh, I'm telling you what, tandem kayak is hard to maneuver by yourself. That's meant for two. Especially hard whenever there is such a weight imbalance, right? With 200-pound dad in the back, <laughs> right? And 40, 50-pound Abram, whatever he weighs up front, yeah? Uh, that was a challenge. And so, like, if I wasn't, like, on it and really anticipating where I was going to have to maneuver to, it was too late. Like, if I was having to react, it was already too late. And so... I, th- I think as we're coming into this thing, I'm not too concerned about this because I can just kind of catch us and push off, right? I actually did that a couple of other times uh, throughout this trip. But we the thing is, is up in this point, these waters are moving real fast. We weren't anticipating this. It's all class one, class two, which is real easy moving stuff, right? And we hop in, and I'm telling you, I mean, a minute into this thing, we are up against the tree, and that water just flipped us, and it's moving. Uh and I, I, I've got my eyes on Abram, and I grab a hold of him, and I say, hey, hang on to this tree. It's not going anywhere. If you get up here and just kind of wedge yourself into this tree, you'll be fine, right? And uh, he says, okay. And I flip, flip the boat over, and uh, we help Abram get back up into it. And, I mean, he's 20, 25 feet away from either shoreline on this river, and the water's moving quick. And it's pretty shallow up until about 10 foot out, then it drops. And there's just no easy way to get out there. And I'm not going to try to climb back into this thing with him on it again because I don't want him to fall over again. Uh, if it was just me, I would have gone for it. Uh, but man, like the adrenaline, right? You've experienced something like that before maybe? Adrenaline kicks in and you're just, yeah. You do things you didn't know you could do, yeah? Uh so once I get him situated, I, I get my eyes up and I notice, crap, our cooler full of our water and electrolytes for the day is empty <laughs> for this five-hour float. And uh, I'm like, that stinks. Somehow, the Ziploc bags with our sandwiches were actually just still like right there, not going anywhere. And so, praise God, I got these sandwiches up, threw them back in the cooler and uh, got that thing kind of cinched in there and just and left Abram there, like lodged against the tree. And I, I took a dive towards the opposite shore because I saw my paddle, <laughs> which I had forgotten to attach, uh, floating away. And I'm like, I've got to get that paddle or the day is over, right? And getting back to where we were, while not super far, is going to be a chore, Right? And I go for it. And I, I end up getting to it. I climb up the other side and try to work my way back around. All the while, Abram is still sitting there in the middle of this river against the tree. And Kristen, she, she can't get to him. She stopped on the other side when she saw us flip with Olivia. Olivia is screaming. She's terrified. I'm kind of scared. Uh, I, like, I, I hate to think what, 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 it, what it would have been like if Olivia was on that boat with me. Yeah? She would have panicked. But Abram, I was so proud of him. He he just, he was so chill. He listened. He did what I said. And then he was up there smiling. 
Yeah. Uh, but once it was all said and done, this whole situation was over. The adrenaline left my body. And that combined with four hours of sleep, combined with, oh, I've got five hours to go, just set in all at once. Yeah. It just set in all at once. And about the next, like I, I was like, babe, I, I just, I'm done. I'm done. I, yeah. But anyway, then we've got the thirst, the sunburn. About the, ha- the next half hour, every time we pass someone, Olivia screams, help us! Help us! I'm like, Olivia, stop it! <laughs> About a third of the way through, I really have to go to the bathroom. And, yeah. We finally managed to float through this entire thing. And and honestly, it was a great trip the rest of the way. Uh, In spite of being really thirsty and hot. Uh, Olivia calmed down and she did really good. She enjoyed herself and Abram did too. Uh, uh, And then we get to the end and we get the the boats back up on on the shore and uh, at the kayak park, right where we were stopping, and I said, "Hey, hand me your keys. I'm going to hop in her car and go get the jeep, bring it back over, and load it up." She goes, "I left them in your glove box." <laughs> oh, all right. What are you going to do? I'm going to get a ride. <laughs> And so uh, some of the folks who happened to pass us and we would pass them and they would pass us along this trip, we had, had took up a conversation with them at one point and I, just, I came up to them and I said, hey, I hate to ask this, but I need a ride up the road about 15 minutes to get my Jeep. And uh, I said, I've got a 20 in the Jeep I'll give you for the trouble. And they were like, oh, no, no way. You know, we'll take you. It's good. They actually had to go up a little further than me, so it was a long way for them. Uh, so thankful for that. And uh, and when, it, when I got up there, I even asked somebody who was unloading at the time, hey, can you spare a bottle of water? I've got a dollar fifty and quarters I'll give you. They're like, no, take two. It's free. It's like so good. <laughs> but uh, in the end, I think we had a great day. We did. An exhausting day that I learned a great deal from. For example... Coolers on kayaks need to be latchable and connected. The paddle needs to be connected. But we had a great day nonetheless. I really do think so. I'm glad that we did it. And I really am looking forward to getting back out there and doing it again. Maybe not that spot, but doing it again. The reason I'm sharing this story with you is because... Very early in this trip, it was already clearly not going very well. Right? Like Saul's kingship, this day was not going to plan. It's like God gave me an object lesson for the day. This was not how I envisioned that day going as I anticipated it for the past two years. Yeah? This is not what I had hoped for. 
And so within a matter of minutes into this thing, into this experience, I had experienced a great deal of regret. Regret. I was sorry I had even thought of doing this. This was my fault. I did this to us. Yeah. I just wanted to go home. I was sad. I regret. Yeah. Kristen, she was my rock in that moment. Uh, she's like, hey, we'll get, we're good. We're good. And uh, I'm telling you what, she's like a pro. If you ever want to go kayaking, uh, take someone who has a lot of anxiety. Because they're always like looking at everything, every possibility. And she's just like, she led the whole way. <laughs> But y'all know what that's like, right? Regret. I've often encountered folks who say things like, I have no regrets. No regrets, right? But let me tell you something. What that sounds like to me, I'm fooling myself, (laughs) right? I don't know how to be honest with me is what I have no regrets sounds like. I don't spend much time in self-reflection is what I have no regrets sounds like. I have many regrets. There are many things that I wish I'd have done differently throughout just about every phase of my life. And many of them I can remember vividly. But being honest with ourselves, reflecting on these moments, is part of what it means to grow up, to mature, to become a better person. Yeah? We don't wallow in it, no. We don't beat ourselves up. It's not going to help. But we do take a second or even third look and ask, how can we do better next time? Right? We learn. We change. I want you to think about some of your own regrets. Maybe just one. Those times when things did not turn out as you had envisioned, as you hoped they would. Right? Poor decisions, whether on your part or someone else's. Close your eyes. And envision those moments as best as you can. Imagine yourself giving that moment or thing to God. Just let him take it. And ask him how you could have done better. Invite him into that memory. He was there with you. You're not playing tricks on yourself. He was there with you. Invite him into that space as you... As you Imagine that moment. Let him take it. Ask what you should work on in yourself. If you, if you begin to feel down about this, you're doing it wrong. Push that aside. Let the Lord's face shine upon you and give you peace. You can carry that regret around like an anchor pulling you under, or you can give it to him. And this is, this is seriously, it's the best way that I know how to do this. You're going to use your body. Call it a spiritual discipline if you want, but imagine yourself physically giving that to him. Like if you have to envision it like inside of a crystal ball in your imagination and then give it to him and let him take it. If you participated in that exercise, I hope it, uh, you found it helpful. 
There's several interesting characters that we can dig into and study in this handful of passages in 1 Samuel. But the one I really want to focus on this morning is God. (laughs) Sometimes our conceptions of God aren't exactly helpful. Yeah. Uh, and a big part of what we do here, and I believe one of the big things that Jesus himself was up to, was helping us to learn to fall in love with a, a truly beautiful God. So I want to teach you something this morning, especially if you struggle to connect with God. I want to teach something to your mind to maybe hopefully help you get your mind out of the way so you can really begin to open up your heart to God. I want to teach you something about God that I find most helpful and most comforting. And I want to start by revisiting our scripture reading to pick up something that you may have missed, something that may carry a little more weight for you now in this moment. The scripture says at the end of chapter 15 in verses 34 to 35. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. Uh, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he made Saul king. Earlier in the same passage, in verse 11, God says, I regret. Hmm. I regret I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. There it is. Yeah? Regret. God. Regret. God was sorry. But how does that even work? How can a God who knows everything, who is infinitely wise, who always makes the right and best decision, how can he ever experience anything remotely resembling regret? Right? But there it is, right there. God regrets. Like me. Like you. In chapter 13, God had intended to bless Saul and his descendants. But then in chapter 15, God regrets. The same thing occurs in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. Verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It seems, perhaps, sometimes things don't turn out the way God wants them to. It seems, perhaps, sometimes God's plans don't work out. I have read many people attempt to explain this sort of language away as anthropomorphic. That is, language which gives God human characteristics to help us humans relate to him. Relate to something so vastly different from us. 
which is just another way of saying, without saying it, a way for us humans to relate to something we can't really relate to. This sort of reading, though, it renders God static, unmoved, like a God carved from stone, wood, or gold. But let me tell you something. You want a God who can regret. Because a God who can regret is alive and active. A God who can regret is interactive, can respond to you and what you do. A God who regrets is a God who can adapt and pivot when needed. A God who regrets is a God who takes risks for people like you and me. A God who regrets is a God who can weep, like Jesus wept for Lazarus. A God who regrets is a God who can bleed. And believe me, you want a God who can bleed. Because the God who bleeds is the God who saves. The God who bleeds is the God that you and I can relate to. So don't be ashamed of your regrets. Don't hide from them. God has had them too. And he wants to help you through them. And this I find most comforting.